all this article serves to do is force you to one side or the other, right? Either you kind of go into this skeptical about Bitcoin or, or maybe not knowing much about it and come out of it feeling very strongly that Bitcoin is evil and Bitcoin miners are evil and they're literally killing people, or you're on our side of the aisle, so to speak, and you roll your eyes and you're like, this is biased and the New York Times is, is a fucking joke. Hello, everyone. How are you? You're doing well. I'm absolutely buzzing here. Rail Bedford had their cup final last night. We smashed Elsto 6-0. That means we end the season with a league and cup double. An incredible first season for Rail Bedford. And thanks to everyone who has supported this. We've got one more game Saturday and then we head into the off-season. So for those of you who don't like the football, I will be shutting up about that for a couple of months now. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by RS Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. And today on the show, I've got my buddy Lane Rettig back, and we're going to be dissecting the bullshit New York Times mining FUD article. So a few months ago, I was hanging out with Lane in the US and telling him about the end of the season plans with the football club and the live event, and Lane said he was going to come down. So he flew in from New York to come and watch us lift the trophy, and obviously, as our favorite shitcoiner, we had to get him on the pod. Now, last time we recorded with Lane, it was a proof-of-work versus proof-of-stake show with Nick Carter, and now Lane has been very critical of of proof-of-stake. And so when we were planning his show, the New York Times FUD piece dropped. So we had to get into it with him. Now, the conversation meanders a little, but I do think we hit all the main talking points. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up on our Patreon, or you can drop me an email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if I sound a bit croaky, it's because I've been yelling or shouting all last night. Well, basically, I've been shouting for two weeks. So I'm going to give my voice a rest before heading out to Miami for the Bitcoin conference. All right, I will speak to you all later. It's lovely. I mean, I'm, to be honest, like just super impressed with Bedford. I, I'm, maybe it's like funny to hear you, for you to hear me say that, but. Well, listen, I, I'm sure some people listen to the show and they're like, I just hit it for Bitcoin and they get bored yeah, yeah. of me going on about Bedford or football, but um, you can have a goal for Bitcoin, but you can also have personal goals and objectives. And uh, yeah, it's very easy to go and live in London. Or New York. New York, LA, Texas, I've considered them all. Sure. But also it's very cool to live in your hometown and try and support it and raise it up. And, uh, you know, it's this football thing's been amazing for the town and will continue to be. Uh, and, and actually, do you know what? I was thinking about this morning because I'm writing my notes for the final program. We get a lot of criticism for yeah, how much we spent on our players. Firstly, nobody knows, but... Oh, you've only won the league because you spent money on players. It's and not that much. I mean, given the league you're in, you told me you have, you know, gave me some sense of like what the players are on per game or something. I mean, it's, 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 at this stage, it's pretty reasonable, right? Well, if I got into debate with somebody about it, I yeah. would say to them, well, firstly, if you've got an issue with what we're spending, take it up with the league and say, we think it's unfair and we should have salary caps. But whilst that doesn't exist, this is a competition and every football club is a business. Yeah. And we're just a successful business. And being a successful business means we are attracting better players into Bedford. They're getting paid. They're spending their money in Bedford. Sure. We're attracting sponsors to Bedford, which means money's coming into their local economy because that's where we spend it all. We spend it all in Bedford. We're getting crowds now 
We had 293 at our last game, which is a record. Like We're going to have more at this game, I think. I think this, so. This, this last home game. That money's coming into Bedford. Yeah. We've yeah. got people. The, the Swan Hotel is fully booked. Yeah. That's money coming into Bedford. So when yeah. anyone gets annoyed, I'm saying, well, you're getting annoyed with us providing jobs and building the local economy. You have literally put Bedford on the map. On literally, the map. For, for, for me and I think you know a bunch of other, let's say Bitcoiners for now, but like I think it'll grow from there. I mean, I've been to... England, you know, many, many times before, and I could not have found Bedford on a map previously. Actually, it's a lot like El Salvador. You know, two years ago, I couldn't have found El Salvador on a map. And a lot of people in the UK probably don't know yeah. where Bedford is. Yeah. And now it's a thing. It's a town that people know. The certain group of people will know as much as they know of London. Actually, some people are going to come to Bedford before they go to London. If yeah, I mean, if Heathrow were closer to Bedford, I probably would have come straight to Bedford without going through London. Did Did you go into London? I did. I spent one night. I wanted to see some mates. I actually had originally planned to come straight to Bedford, but then wanted to see some mates in London two nights ago. So well, so it's um, it's an amazing thing to see. When we went to the Miami conference last year, there were a handful of people wearing the T-shirt that just says Bedford. Just Bedford, like the hat. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I remember going to one of the guy and I was like, oh, oh, cool. Where are you from? He's like, oh my God, Pete McCormick. I was like, oh my God, Bedford. And he was like, oh, I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a guy from Arkansas wandering around with a t shirt that says Bedford. But I'm, yeah, I'm excited to see how many more I see You've this year. got people coming this week from all over, right? All over I the mean, world. I don't have that many friends in this part of the world. I was actually telling Danny about this last night, but I mentioned to a handful of my friends in and around London about this weekend in the game, and they're coming up. Wow. Well, that's very cool. Well, so the last game we, on Monday, we won, won the league. We had one guy flown in from Minneapolis <laughs> and we had two guys who came on the train from Amsterdam. Yeah. And I think they had probably one of the best nights of their lives. It was so good. If they remember it. <laughs> they like, going to have another night like that this week. They knew all the players' names yeah. and they were like hanging out with them in the clubhouse afterwards. It was so good. <laughs> Singing songs. And, and so listen, when anybody in football moans about what we're doing, I can destroy every one of their yeah. arguments and yeah. say, we are, growing, this, we are growing the economy through football. And when any Bitcoiner is moaning about, well, stop talking about football, I'm like, look, El Salvador has done it through sovereign adoption of Bitcoin. Yeah. That's, that's their Trojan yeah. horse. I'm doing it through football. There's a bunch of people now who know about Bitcoin because of our club. Yeah. And that's only going to grow. If we go up through the leagues, we get bigger crowds, more awareness. So that's, you know, look, I get this personal thing, right? I get to do both at the same time. So yeah. it is brilliant. You have the greatest job on earth, I think. Um, no, but, but seriously, there's like so many of the things we talk about are so abstract. You know, we talk about these ideals like decentralization, censorship resistance. There's something about football I'm going to call it football because I'm in England, right? That like, it's like, it's just accessible. It's just like concrete and simple and beautiful. Um, and so it's like giving all these ideals in this Bitcoin you know, story we're telling like a grounding in reality. So and I I'll, think it's beautiful, really, honestly. I'm very careful with our approach for it here as well. So when you come to the football club, we do not ram Bitcoin down your throat. Yeah. A lot of people will come, watch a game and leave. They might see something, but yeah. it's not rammed down their throat. Yeah. We have once a month, we have a meetup before a game, which you're welcome to come to. If you want to pay with Bitcoin, you can, but there isn't like yeah, yeah. massive pay with Bitcoin. It's not signs. proselytizing exactly. Yeah. No, because that's the other point, because it yeah. is my local town. Yeah. The, my disaster scenario is somebody putting loads of money yeah, to yeah, Bitcoin yeah. and losing it. And I do not want to do that. And that's why we wrote the article on the website, uh, why you should not buy Bitcoin. And it's just telling them why they should psychology. <laughs> no, no, it's more about why you should. I mean, I do this almost with everyone now. Yeah. And anyone asks me, I was like, no, just go and learn about it. 
just go and learn about it because it will send you down that rabbit hole of banking and central yeah. banking yeah. and the economy yeah. and everything else. But just don't go. Your first point isn't just to buy it. Yeah. Your first point is to learn about it. But so no, it's been it's a beautiful thing. We won the league, and now you're here to see us get the trophy on Saturday. Congratulations on winning the league. This is the first step towards a, a much longer story, I know. Well, it'll um, get harder every year, yeah. um, but fingers crossed we can do it again next year. But thanks for coming all this way, man. It's a long way to come. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, like I said a moment ago, um, it's beautiful. I mean, not all of Bedford is beautiful, but nope. the part, this part is beautiful. You know, like I don't know if you notice it on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of being from here and living here, but you know, you have a Queens Park down the road and a King's Corner and these these little, uh, what are they called? Um, cottages, you know, with the thatched roofs yep. and things. I mean, it is the quintessential English town, truly, yeah. it's beautiful. Did you walk up the river? I walked the all the way from- No, you walked all the way here, Yeah. but have you gone the other way from the Swan and up the river? Yeah, I, I ran there this morning, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's also beautiful. Yeah, that river is lovely. That part of, you know, part of Bedford is beautiful. The embankment. But you know, we have our bits that, that need work and, sure. you know. I saw some of that too. Yeah, and like every town, and you know, all I hope is that I can do things that can raise this up. Yeah. And a bunch of people are gonna come in this weekend, they're gonna spend money in yeah. Bedford and they're gonna leave it there. And that to me is great. And long may it continue. I have enormous respect for this project and for your investing in, you know, in, in your hometown. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey. Uh, it probably has something in common with Bedford and, um, like you said, it's easy to live in a place like New York or London. It's not so easy to live in a town like that. Well, so England also has a, and Danny will probably tell you a bit about this, but England has a thing called the North-South Divide, which yeah. is real. Yeah. But also England is really London. That is it. The, the government and the politics yeah, is yeah. entirely focused on London. Yeah. And London is thriving and yeah. successful. And then we have other wealthy towns that do okay. But I mean, the North South divide is real. Oh, I 100% think it's real. So I'm from like Manchester, which is up north. And around Manchester, it's nice. There's loads of nice towns, nice cities. But when you go out outside of the main, uh, out of actual Manchester, the local towns are so deprived compared to when you come down to like around Cambridge and Oxford and around these yeah, places. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, the there's, there's a yeah. huge difference. I, I told you my, my best mate's from Huddersfield, actually, believe it huh. or not. And I've spent quite a bit of time, time there and in Yorkshire with him. And I mean, that's the north, right? And he mm. told me many times about how he was discriminated against when he was applying for jobs in London because of his accent and where he came from. Wow. That doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. Yeah. I mean, they sound a bit thick from others. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Chofanel. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome and thank you for coming. Um, I'm Bedford pilling people and football pilling it's people working. and I'm orange pilling people through football and it's a beautiful thing and to have all these people surround it and supporting it is it's just incredible. I mean, today we've got my dad here, who's the kit man You've of the club. You've got three generations here, mate. I mean, that's I know. incredible. Yeah, my son's here now working on the show. Uh, we've got Will here today for his first time. Will is uh, joining us. He's going to be working across our media and social media. And, you know, people will know him as the commentator on the football team. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I've, I've, I've heard him before. We watched the game together in Miami. We did. Yeah, yeah we did. Very unique commentary because really he's a rugby commentator. And he right. had, he's kind of brought the rugby commentary to the football so it's kind of unique yeah. i like it a lot because yeah. it's different and uh yes yeah, a lot of people get involved my sister's going to be here my brother's going to be here all our friends are going to be here it's going to be as they say in the godfather it's a family business it is a family business <laughs> and we're going to celebrate it and then i'm going to get up on monday morning i'm going to go to work and start planning how we're going to win the title again next year and i've got a weekend start on everyone else oh and we've got a cup final next week as well forgot about that yeah so we can win the double amazing I have to ask about the mug. Oh yeah, so the mug. <laughs> Before we jump in. So that was a gift. 
from um, Keith Levine, God rest his soul. Uh, Keith Levine was a founding member of The Clash. Ah, okay. And he became a Bitcoiner late in his life, and he wrote to me. And we, he came on the show, I think he went on Marty's show as well, and we made a... Uh, 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 we then used to just have emails, exchange emails, and then do the odd call. And he was brilliant, because he would just be my friend and then directly give me shit for who I was. And so... As, as all true friends do. Yeah, he's a proper punk rock guy. Yeah, right? he, of course. He found... He was a founding member of the fucking Clash. And so anyway, he, you know, he sees through me. Uh, I think I'm a bit metal, a bit punk rock, but I'm also a bit mainstream. So he sent me this mug. So anyone who can't... Is on just listening on audio. Excuse the language that's coming, but it says, underneath your tattoos, you're still a mainstream cunt. And... Uh, he totally gets away with calling me that. So, uh, yeah, uh, sadly, uh, in one of the last... Uh, is that my washing machine going? These microphones are very powerful. They're very powerful. It's all right, Carl, leave it. Um, so, uh, yeah, sadly, in one of our last calls together, he let me know he was sick. Uh, he'd been diagnosed, I think it was with liver cancer. Um, but, you know, told me and then got on with it and we we carried on chatting and then... A few weeks later, or a month or so later, I found out. I think it was for, from Svenholm actually. Let me know that he'd passed away, which is really sad because yeah. he was. Uh, he joined the Bitcoin Army. He was one of us, yeah. and uh, yeah, God rest his soul, Keith. I've been very sad about that. I know Marty was very sad about that as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, but I uh, I love this mug, and I will every time I'll drink it, I'll think of Keith and appreciate that short friendship we had. To Keith. Yeah, to Keith. Um, and you've got a real buffer mug. So anyway, welcome. Thank you for coming all this way. You're in Bitcoin country now. We, uh, we don't let too many shitcoiners in. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, um, for anyone who's not listened to our previous shows, Lane is also a Bitcoiner, a hardened Bitcoiner. And, um, Bitcoiner first. Bitcoiner first, shitcoiner second. But we've made some great shows. People really like you and appreciate you as, as we do. You're a good friend of the show. And... Uh, an article dropped this week from the propaganda machine, the New York Times, regarding Bitcoin mining. And we all knew they were working on it. And we all knew what it was going to be about. And we all had our, we were all skeptical about sure. what the output would be. Uh, I had a tinge of hope that would, they would have made an attempt right. with some real journalism and spoken to both sides and written a balanced article. And they didn't. It's It's an embarrassing piece of shit and it really pisses me off and so uh, we talked about approaching this and danny said let's get lane on it because we covered some of the similar stuff with nick last with time, nick we last spoke. time. Yeah. and i do want to attack this article and i do want to attack the new york times and i do want to call out the journalist who did this because i don't think he should be calling himself a journalist and so i assume most people listening will know of the article if you haven't read it please do go and read it uh, and yeah, let's uh, let's work through it. T okay, do you want to do a TLDR on what the article sure. is and does? Yeah, let me say a couple of things up front. Um, you know, the first is that I really try to keep an open mind when it comes to you know, quote unquote, mainstream media uh, in general, and the New York Times in particular. And in, what I really try to do is what is that famous line? Never chalk up to uh, to malice what can be explained through ignorance or incompetence. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like try to give them the benefit of the doubt and kind of assume, you know, that it's more ignorance than, than malice. But, um, you know, so I, I read the article the first time and maybe the second time with that frame of mind. And then 
just completely failed because as we'll get into here, uh, it really feels malicious in some ways. I mean, even like starting with the, the hero image, the banner image, the lead, I think they call it right in, uh, in journalism, um, which as you guys have seen, right, there's been some um, questions around whether this particular image, which shows a Bitcoin mining operation in Texas, I forget the name of the town it's in. It's one of the large ones. The Rockdale one. The I think so, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the largest one, I think, right? Um, but like, you know, this, this cloud of haze around it, right? Whether the image is doctored and, and making the point that like, it's only hazy, you know, a handful of days out of the year in Texas. And like, why was this image chosen? Was it modified? All this kind of stuff. Um, and there's a lot of that throughout this article, um, which is very, it's very frustrating. It's very disappointing for a bunch of reasons, but I think the biggest reason is that it, um, you know, we're, we're living in this age, obviously, of, it's certainly in the, in the United States, but, you know, I'm sure here to some extent as well, of polarization, political polarization. And like all this article serves to do is force you to one side or the other, right? Either you kind of go into this skeptical about Bitcoin or, or maybe not knowing much about it and come out of it feeling very strongly that Bitcoin is evil and Bitcoin miners are evil and they're literally killing people, right? So we, we'll talk about that in a sec as well, because that's the, the way the article starts. Um, or you're on our side of the aisle, so to speak, and you roll your eyes and you're like, this is biased and the New York Times is, is a fucking joke. But they're right? almost- It's very frustrating. If you're on that side, you're almost on the side of alt-right conspiracy theorists, group right. of people. Right. Whereas if you're on the side of them, you're on the side of the compassionate, progressive side, which makes me very thankful we have people like yourself, Margot Paez, right. um, Trey Walsh, uh, Jason Meyer, a group of people yeah. who traditionally probably weren't, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't answer for them, but I would assume maybe New York Times readers, certainly on the progressive right, so side. This, this, is, this is me. By Your the target way. market, right? This is me. You know, I grew up reading the New York Times and, and putting it on something of a pedestal. Um, definitely considered myself liberal, you know, in the American sense of the word a few years ago, um, and have been on this kind of political, you know, journey over the past few years with, with, you know, Bitcoiners among others. Um, and yeah, I just found, find myself feeling very politically homeless lately as a result of, uh, I mean, a bunch of factors, but this is one of them, right? The, the complete and absolute and utter failure of the mainstream media to present, you know, kind of thoughtful journalism that, that, you know, covers, both sides of the story. It's, it's, I, I just, I don't, I mean, where do we get our news? I mean, this is a whole separate topic. I, you've covered it before you had a good, you know. This role, man, we got time. Recently on it. Um, you know, Reddit, Twitter, like seriously, like news is important. You know, I read yeah. The Economist. That's, that's, how do I put it? It's pretty good, but it's, I mean, it's consistently, you know, it has its bias, but it's like kind of wears its bias on a sleeve, so to speak. You kind of know where they're coming from. Uh, I like the fact that it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a weekly thing, so you're not getting the the same kind of frenetic stuff that you get from something like the New York Times. But it, it's genuinely a crisis. I mean, we're in this crisis of um, like media and governance. Yeah, but but it's even it's even deeper than that, right? It's like we uh, like how do we know what's real? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's going on in the world? I don't know the answer to that question anymore. Like we're just questioning the most basic things. And I, I legitimately don't know like where to turn to, to, to know the truth unless I've you know, observed it myself. And I think that that's, that's a, a huge, huge, huge social issue. Yeah, and I think I, I kind of th have a picture of what I think is going on. In that pre-internet, um, there wasn't very many news sources. When right. I grew up, there were right. three or four TV channels. Same in the States, yeah. The news was on, 
you know, once or twice a day, there was like a six o'clock news and a 10 o'clock news. Uh, and it wasn't really commercialized in the way it is now. There are a number of newspapers and you kind of read the newspaper, which was from your cohort of people. Right. And then the political debates happened from distance. You got your updates and you just got on and lived your life. Right. And so I suspect everything that was happening pr now was happening previously. Right. It was just easy to get away with it. The corruption was hidden. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that the, the internet has had a lot of deep foundational impacts on human society. But one of the biggest ones is just, I mean, frankly, revealing bullshit. Like, yeah. we're all aware, like like you said, it, it was this way before. We have always been lied to yeah. by the powers that be, whether it's, you know, governments, large companies, media organizations, et cetera, which is, we now know that we're being lied to. And when someone lies, we find out more or less immediately because of the internet. But what I think is going on now is, and this is where I'm re really trying to pick my words carefully, because... I tr I'm tr always trying to do an important job yeah. of bringing normies into this world, not just to learn about Bitcoin, yeah. but to learn about Bitcoin, politics, news, media, truth, all this stuff, just so people have a better picture of the world. And I'm always trying to word it in a way where I don't sound like a nutter. I don't want to sound like I'm Alex Jones. Of course, you're, what, what did you say recently? Your, your Facebook friends think you're Alex Jones and your Bitcoin friends think you're a status cop, no, right? My, my, no, <laughs> no, my American friends think I'm a crazy liberal and my British friends think I'm, think I'm Alex Jones. It's, yeah. my, it's my pin tweet. I leave it up there now for yeah. probably stay there forever. But I'm always trying to do it because I don't want to scare people off. You know, when I present yeah. a CBDC and I try and explain what, how these will be used in China, China and that's may come here, it's a big leap for people who haven't yeah. seen behind the veil of what's going on. Yeah. So Behind the Veil, that's a good name. I feel like we should, there should be a podcast with that name. Yeah, that'd be a good one. That's Craig Wonky's article, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, but it's a, it's a great name. It's a good brand. So I'm going to use it if you don't. We're going to use it. Register that domain name quickly. Behind the veil .com. Uh, <laughs> It's really good. It's really good. But I'm, I'm always trying to, to do it in, in the best way I can. And the way I'm trying to picture what's going on now is that this kind of internet technology era means we've, we're all closer to the truth. Right. We can smell and see bullshit. We're told it sooner. And so I feel like the elite's control of what we have, which is the political class, the you know, the su super successful corporations, the media. They, they what, what Curtis Yarvin calls the cathedral. I think it's a good all-encompassing term. Right. So the cathedral, their control over the narrative, discourse, society, economy, I think it's starting to fragment. Oh, absolutely. And... Yeah. And so we've got this, we've, I see two battles. There's one battle where they're pitching us against each other, but there's really one battle of us and them. Yeah. And I'm more in for the us v them now. You know, the choking of Bitcoin right now is because the dollar is collapsing, so they don't want people to exit to that. Uh, I see something like Substack as a really positive move towards better information. Definitely. You know, you're seeing, I mean, Elon Musk has essentially attacked that this week. Unbelievable. I mean, we should talk about that too. That's, it, it blew my mind. Yeah. But that is, again, I can, you know, he's like got one foot in their camp and one foot in yeah. ours. Yeah. You know, he's one time he's doing a deal with China and the other time he's telling us for free speech. But that control is starting to fragment. And I think that's the battle of our time is, yeah. is, is that it's the us v them now. It's not the left v right. That's just all a fake game. It's what they want you to believe. It's what they want you to believe. So that's what I think is yeah. going on now. That's what I think is happening, Lane. So I really don't understand who is behind the New York Times, what their motivation is, what they're trying to do. But what I do know is they are now liars who are, well, I mean, I knew for a long time, but they're now... <laughs> I don't think that's new. <laughs> yeah. But it's like very clear to me because they're in my world now yeah. that they're liars and they're yeah. uh, disseminated propaganda. By yeah. the way, did you see the Noam Chomsky article from 2015? That came up this week. Have you got it, Danny? 
So Noam Chomsky, the New York Times is yeah. pure propaganda. A front, I'm not going to read it all. A front yeah. page article is devoted to a flawed story about a campus rape in the journal Rolling Stone, exposed in the leading academic journal of the media critique. So Sophia's the departure from journalistic integrity that is also the subject of Lee's story in the business section, with a full inside page devoted to the continuation of the two reports. Blah, 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 blah. So basically, oh, and his refreshing commitment to the Times to the integrity of journalism basically goes on to explain issues with the New York Times. And I think that is it now. I mean, I personally... Um, declaring a personal war in the New York yeah, Times because yeah, it's a yeah, propaganda machine. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. And uh, just to reiterate the point I made a little earlier, it's it's sad. Like, really, this is what I feel is sadness because the New York Times is a brand that I grew up with and did have some degree of trust for. Do you feel you might have always been lied to them? By them? By them, yeah, I think yeah. so. But, you know, I think it's just become more blatant recently, more more obvious. You know, I'll tell you when I first started to lose faith in the New York Times, I actually do remember this moment. It was um, It was the Trump election. Right. The first, well, the one where he was elected, right? So 20, going into 2016. Um, and it was specifically, like, I, I think actually that you could make a strong case that the New York Times created Donald Trump the president, right? With the incessant coverage, you know, um, of his campaign. And in particular, the, the negative way in which they portrayed Hillary Clinton, like the fact that they put her bloody emails on, you know, the front page multiple times or something. Um, that was very sad to see. And, you know, you could, you could kind of chalk that up and, and again, be, be generous, right? And kind of say, well, there was a political moment and, you know, they had no idea that he had any real chance of being elected, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but really, yeah, that, that's, that's what's so frustrating to me about, about this and some other stuff that's come out recently. Like basically all the coverage in the Times of Bitcoin, to the extent that there has been coverage, has been negative. And I, I've never seen an article or even an opinion piece. I guess there's been a couple, some, some Bitcoiners have managed to get things in, in the opinion column here and there. Um, but it's just it's just overwhelmingly negative, and it really makes you wonder, like, what's the source of the bias, and do they have an agenda? And I mean, I, I'm not by any means a conspiracy theorist, and I, I I tend to think that there's like much simpler explanations for a lot of this stuff. But it just makes me sad. It really genuinely makes me sad. What perhaps they're just pandering to the audience because they know what the audience wants. Yeah, maybe to think that's more like this. the explanation, but that doesn't excuse the behavior, right? No, not at all, not at all. I, you know what? Just to give a note that a similar article, not as bad, was, uh, but there was a similar, very negative article about Bitcoin from the Spectator, and I. That's a UK publication. Yeah, it's right? a UK publication. I tagged the in the tweets. I tagged the. I think it was it was either the editor or the journalist who wrote it and said like you're fundamentally wrong, blah blah blah, and they said feel free to write a response, and I did. And they published it almost unedited. They made a few changes, edits with regards to kind of structure and, and uh, uh, grammar, which were changes I accepted because it yeah. proved the article, yeah. but they were open to it. I've tried similar things. I tried it once with the FT. They edited my article so many times they made it pointless, so that was a waste of time. Uh, and I've tried to reach out to the, uh, is it Alex Hearn at The Guardian? Yeah. He just will not enter a dialogue. He's made his decision, I am anti-Bitcoin. And and those people to me are just not journalists. Right. If you're a journalist... Right. Right. You're, you're not willing to engage or sort, you know, like cover the other side of the story. Exactly. I look, yeah. I'm not saying I am the most knowledgeable Bitcoin. I think it's openly known that. Yeah. But when the guy with the biggest podcast reach out to, reaches out to you and says, listen, I think you've got something wrong here. Here's a list of things I can help you. And for you to completely ignore that, you're not a journalist. So it, it, when these people call themselves yeah. journalists, yeah. They're, they're lying. They're not journalists. Yeah. They're, they're propagandists. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. Um, so yeah, maybe we can dive in and, and yeah. talk about some of the details of this piece and, and why that's the case here. Um, one, one more thing I want to say up front. Um, I knew literally zero about Bitcoin mining or energy a year to two years ago. 
and pretty much everything I've learned uh, about it, and, and I have been deep diving, as you know, right, has been because of your show, because of you know the Bitcoin community, and specifically, I want to shout out to Nick Carter, Troy Cross, and Harry Sudak. I mean, these guys are legends, as yeah. you know. They've all been on the show. I touched base with a couple of them you know, over the past couple of days when I knew we'd be talking about this, and and uh, so I want to give them credit here for like a lot of the ideas and things we're going to share and discuss are uh, you know things that come from them. They've tweeted a bunch of the stuff as well. Um, I retweeted several important threads, uh, which you will have already seen, probably most or all of them, um, on, on my Twitter. Uh, so if you do want to link to any of them in the show notes or anything, they're they're all there. Including Harry's? Yeah, including Harry's. Yeah. yeah. That was epic. And there's, there's a couple, one or two visuals as well that might be useful. There was one that shows the, um, I think it was in Harry's thread. I think it was the second tweet in that thread. It shows the energy stack, like the, 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 the source of, you know, the renewables, the non-renewables, because we're going to talk about... Um, what is it called? Marginal, um, Marginal emissions. emissions. Yeah. Right. Yes. This one, this is going to be really useful when we get there. So just have that handy. Yeah. And also shout out to Margot who wrote a fantastic article, right. which we will put that in was the BPI, show right? notes. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. put that in the show notes. Uh, just to echo what you said, uh, I, I learned more about Bitcoin mining in the week I spent in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and where's the other place I went to? Um, uh, visiting Riot, Giga, all these different companies yep. learning about mining, spending time with our new sponsor, Iris. You know, right. I've, I've learned so much more about mining and energy in that period. Like it basically, in the space of almost two weeks, I learned more about Bitcoin mining yeah. than I'd learned in five years making yeah. the podcast because I've seen it up close. Yeah. And so, but it only took me a week of talking to the right people. And by the way, I, I agree with you. Like sometimes I think as Bitcoiners, we're also... For legit, sometimes we tell we, we spin yarns, yeah. tell narratives which are completely untrue because we believe them. Or sometimes, you know, we aren't as forgiven as we should be. Like this stuff's hard. I can understand a journalist can be ignorant and make mistakes. By the way, I think this one is malice. Yeah, but 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 at the same time, <laughs> it's very very challenging when you see a, uh, an organization like the New York Times. Yeah attacking a technology which we know supports people around the right, world, outside right, of America, right. that is used by activists, human rights activists, used by uh, people who are suffering under various forms of oppression. Whatever you think about it, it is a tool that is helping other people. So for them to so openly attack it, right. to me, smacks of evil. No, I, I agree. Uh, and again, this is just because I'm, 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 I'm having it today. I'm yeah. fucking not having it. <laughs> I, it, it, it. It makes me sad. And they've declared war on Bitcoin. It's fairly obvious. I think what you said a moment ago about the human rights use cases for Bitcoin. I mean, you know, obviously Alex Gladstein, you know, the HRF, those folks are doing really important work there. And it's, it's, that's undeniable. I mean, that those things are happening. We've, we've heard those stories. We've met activists who, you know, for whom it has made a huge difference and moved the needle. And, you know, um, yeah, that, that side of the story has been told as well. So the fact that it's not covered is really sad. This show is brought to you by Ledin. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up today, we have Ledger. 
Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time to take your security a little more seriously. Because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger user since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. The Nano S, to me, is the best hardware device on the market, so if you're not managing your private keys, please do go and check out the Nano S or the Nano S Plus now. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. And they are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us. So they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did. We are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films to our live events and they're even sponsoring my football team, Real Bedford. So I'm really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. Now, if you want to find out more about Iris Energy, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Right, so let's get into let's this. Get into it. Bitcoin um, mining killed 40 people. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. This so yeah, again, my point about malice rather than ignorance. I mean, the fact that this is the first piece of the article where right? they talk about uh winter storm Yuri, right? In February 2021, which hit Texas over the span of a few days. Uh it was an, an extreme extreme weather event. Um I think it was uh 60 degrees Fahrenheit obviously, like below regular temperature. What's, what's that in, our, in British language? Oh, that's uh, that minus 32, 33 degrees uh, centigrade, colder than usual, right? It's nine-fifths, five-ninths. Hold on, 60 is 15 degrees? 15, 15 degrees colder than normal. That's no, 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 pretty, no, no, it's more than that. It's more than that. It's a pretty good day here. It's more than that. Just multiply by uh, by five over nine. That's the ratio between centigrade and Fahrenheit. Because hmm. we're talking about a temperature temperature differential here, not oh, okay, temperature. Oh, okay, I've got not. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's something on the order of 30 degrees centigrade, you know, below normal. And it caused um, it caused a lot of power generation to go offline, is my understanding, right? So there was water that froze inside, like, gas wells. And um, I think to, to some, I think even, maybe even the nuclear power generation was was impacted and, and wind, and, you know, was, it was impacted. Um, so it was really a truly freak event. It was obviously very complicated. Um, I remember hearing stories at the time about friends in Austin who... You know, we're, we're freezing at home, right? Their 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 electricity failed. They didn't have any heat, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, some what, what was the number? Twenty people, forty people died. Well, 40, yeah. So that's the quoted number, but the suspicion is a lot more people died. So sure. when I was out there sure. making the film, I met a lady, and she said, "I think we were lied to about the number yeah. of people who died." But yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, um, but but so then to, way, to, to draw this false equivalence, and and, and you know, and and actually not suggest, but just state explicitly that, you know, Bitcoin miners had a major role to play here, I think is is worse than disingenuous, right? I think it is it is malicious. Um, if there was no Bitcoin mining in Texas at the time, 
the infrastructure still would have failed because it was an infrastructure issue. Right. That is commonly known. It was an infrastructure right. issue. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I think Harry made the point in one of his threads, let's see if I have it in my notes here, that, yeah, during, so this is powerful. During Winterstorm Yuri, miners returned enough electricity to power 1 million homes, the equivalent of adding an average sized nuclear reactor to the Texas grid, right? So this was, this was in Harry's Twitter thread. They didn't tell that side of the story, right? And so that gets into demand response. We'll talk more about demand response and why it matters. Well, but so the Bitcoin miners did what they were supposed to do. You know, when uh, when the, the grid, when ERCOT, um, through this demand response program, asked them to reduce their consumption, I mean, they did, and they did it immediately and, and returned power to the grid. And we should talk about demand response yeah. because uh, historically it would be to call up a smelting plant to power down, which is- Yeah, or a university, or yeah. in some case, uh, in some cases, residential buildings as well. I mean, they're, they're much, how do I put it? They're much less good at demand response than Bitcoin miners are. And that's, I think, part of the issue here. If you, if you read this article, um, you'll see that the way that demand response is discussed in the article, uh, they're talking about, it's kind of like, it's unfair, right? You get this sense, it's unfair. It's unfair that Bitcoin miners are so good at demand response and they're able to take advantage of the system, which existed long before, um, Bitcoin, right? So it, it comes from at least the 2000s. I, I don't know exactly how far back demand response goes. Um, but another fun point here is that uh, the New York Times has covered demand response in a very positive light many, many times. There's a long list of articles, um, at least a dozen, uh, covering demand response very, very positively. I think I have my favorite one here. Um, Okay. But, uh, but there, there was there was a there was a Supreme Court decision. So basically, uh, sometime I don't know, fifteen-ish years ago, there was a court case brought by utility companies um, claiming that I don't know, demand it's it's unfair somehow, and and you know companies shouldn't be able to shouldn't be be reimbursed for for returning power to the grid or for shutting down. Uh, and the the court ruled that no, this is perfectly legal. And the New York Times said this is a a brilliant decision, and it's like it's a common sense. I think it's some, something like common sense in the title or something. Common sense decision. So. So <laughs> the EPA has written positively about demand response. Who, who, what was the, Sean Connell talked about this. He talked about there's the, the report that was done about creating this uh, specification for the best form of demand response. I don't know what the report but is. But anyway, there, there was, whoever it was, some association, some government body, some state body in Texas. I know what you mean. Um, so let me pull it up. There was a... Um, the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy basically have obviously said over and over again that um, demand response is like a vital part of the grid. So th they've gone against like the Department of Energy. Yes, yeah. they've, they've completely yeah. flipped the narrative, and I've yeah. no idea why. But the Department of Energy created a, a specification for how demand response should work, mm -hmm. and as I understand it, from what Sean told us, is Bitcoin miners were the only. It was the only industry that met the entire specification. Right. Right. In that they could instantly. Turn off. So let's, can we step I, back a second and talk about what demand response is? Yeah, yeah. I just, and, okay, yeah, and I'll throw in the thing after yeah. that. So let's, let's, let's do some basics. I, I mean, I know you're always happy to do basic. Yeah, I am I too. It. And, you know, for me, like I'm at the remedial phase right now anyway, with respect to like mining and power. So it's always helpful to cover basics. So yeah, let's start with, you know, some real basic basics. So at this moment, the best estimates suggest that Bitcoin mining overall is using two-tenths of a percent, that is to say two one-thousandths of all global energy uses. It's always good to put things in a global perspective. Um, that's pretty small. 
I mean, it's large in absolute terms, but it's very small in relative terms. And if it were to disappear tomorrow, it would have almost no impact whatsoever on, on global emissions and on climate change and those sorts of things. Um, this is also a fairly obvious point, but you know, Bitcoin mining does not directly cause any emissions. You, pro you probably saw the, the parody video that Riot put out on Twitter. Yeah, that was really we funny. Did absolutely With brilliant. The, the, the CO2 monitor. <laughs> do, do, do you know what? Pierre Rochard, for all our disagreements, he's absolutely been crushing it recently. And the really interesting point about that uh, demand response video, uh, sorry, the uh, carbon emissions yeah. video that Pierre did, is that there are people retweeting it, criticizing him, saying... And not realizing that yeah, it's saying they, no, but, satire. Yeah, but, it's, it's, but not even that. They're saying Bitcoin is a delusional. But these same people aren't... The, these same people aren't uh, uh, looking at a Tesla yeah, and, and, yeah, and yeah, associating yeah. them the same. Or for that matter, you know, a data center, a Google yeah, data center, exactly. a Facebook data center. I mean, Bitcoin miners, I mean, again, stating the obvious, they're just computers. Yeah, mm -hmm. they consume energy. Just like every other Consumer industry energy. and application. Yeah, Playstations, so, Christmas lights. Christmas lights, that's one of my favorite ones. Um, but so let's move towards demand response. Let's talk about that because it really is interesting. So the key things about Bitcoin mining as an industry and about Bitcoin mining farms are they have these, these golden, I think, I think Nick called them golden properties or something. There's three or four of them, right? So one is that um, they're attenuable, right? Which means they can not only dial up and dial down their power consumption, they can shut off completely and they can do so more or less instantly in a matter of seconds. Um, as far as I'm aware, that's not true of any other industry. You talk about coal smelters and, you know, aluminums and metals and things. They're attainable to some degree, right? They can reduce power consumption, but it's only on the order of 10, 20, maybe 30% in the extreme. Uh, and they can only do that for some short period of time, for a few hours, because metals start yeah. to harden if you, you know, if you kind of let them cool too much. Um, whereas Bitcoin miners can stay off as long as they need to, right? So these are really unique properties and they're really important properties. And I think this is, this is, this is where the nuance comes in that people who don't do their homework don't understand. So this is where I just wanted to throw the piece yeah. in where I'd spoken to both Lee Bratcher at the Texas uh, Blockchain Council and Sean Connell. And I can't remember the period it was, but there was a time when there was a panic from the grid and the grid said, we are absolutely... Uh, we 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 need them. Why are the and I said, why are the miners not turning off? Why are the mine? They phone up Lee. So why are the miners not turning off? We've got an issue. We need the power. We need the power. By the time um, uh, Lee had spoken to the miners, they had automatically <laughs> switched <laughs> off. The problem was they they work so perfectly because they react to the pricing in the market right. that they turn off the very second you need them to turn right, off. Right. Not early. Right. They can't turn off early because they react to price. Right. They see the price and they turn off. Right. And so they, they, they work so perfectly. I mean, Sean even showed us that. Have you got that chart? That Sean yeah, I'm just opening it up. Now. Yeah. This chart is absolutely brilliant because it's basically an inverse chart between mining and price. And when the pricing's wrong, they turn off. Right. So this was like a live view of their mining operation. That's really is, fascinating to see it like this. Yeah. And this is the, uh, yeah. obviously them powering down as yeah. energy prices go up. And it's almost instantaneous. Was instantaneous. this, is this Witterstrom Yuri? Or is this a different, you know? <clears throat> this, it, no, this must be later because this is December 2022. Ah, yeah. uh, but there was a bad winter storm in yes, December as there well. there was. But yeah, so they, they are, you can literally see where the first bump in the price comes yep. over that line and becomes unprofitable, they immediately turn off and then there's a massive, massive ramp up in pricing. It's, but they, they actually integrate, it's such a perfect system yeah. Yeah. designed based on economic incentives yeah. for miners to, to be the best demand response. Yeah. So um, what is demand response? I mean, I, I, I think it's fairly self-explanatory at this point, but it's maybe worth saying just a word yeah, or two yeah. about it. Uh, and I mean, again, I'm not an expert here, but... Uh, you know, it is a 
I guess you could call it that, a program or a system of economic incentives um, that some grids, including the ERCOT grid, the Energy Reliability Council of Texas, is that right? Um, put in place, I'm sure others have some version of this as well, whereby they do a couple things. So the first is they pay the consumers, so in this case, the Bitcoin mining farms um, throughout the year to be a part of this program. So they're just picking up additional proceeds by being part of it and by being willing to shut down. Right. And I think that they talked a little bit about this in, in the Times article as well. And then the second and more interesting piece is that when the grid is uh, on the verge of breaking down, um, which happens something like two to three times a year, right? So it's, it's a very infrequent thing. Um, then they would get paid more to actually do what we just saw in that, in that graphic and actually just like attenuate or just shut down completely for some period of time. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's pretty simple and it's really good economics. Yeah. Right? It's the reason every time you switch on your light, the light comes on. That exactly. absolute basic privilege yeah. that we have that we take for granted. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that hospitals don't need to, to reduce their energy consumption during emergencies because you have other energy consumers who are able to, you know, willing and able to, to reduce consumption. Um, so in this respect, it, it protects the grid. Um, so the other point I think that was made by some of these folks um, that we've been discussing is that you know, we are moving towards an, an overall more green, uh, sustainable base of, of electricity generation, right? So things like wind and solar. And uh, wind and solar are awesome, but the issue is that they, unlike nuclear and gas and some other sources of energy, um, you know, there, there's periods when they produce a lot and periods when they produce less. And as we move more towards renewables, um, it's demand response is gonna become more important for, for exactly this reason, right? So we're, mm -hmm. gonna, we're gonna have these, um, you know, more of these situations where, um, the, the demand spikes and the grid, you know, wouldn't be able to handle it without demand response. Um, and the alternative, by the way, it's also worth mentioning is what are called these gas peaker plants. Um, so natural gas, at least in the United States is the, the source of electricity generation that, that comes in. It's kind of like the, the supplier of last resort, it seems like, and they're enormously expensive, um, eight to $10 billion, something like that to construct one of these plants. And so I think you could make the case that, and I think Harry and some others have made the case, and then maybe there are some, some hard numbers here as well, um, that, if you have a really robust demand response system in place, you don't need as many of those peaker plants. So hopefully would bring down the overall cost of power. And, and it's, I mean, greener as well, because, you know, gas is, is not the greenest way to generate electricity. Yeah, and it's, it's probably just worth doing, doing a little bit on the miners and, and sure. the incentives they work to and why it's good for them to operate as demand response. Well, so I think it, it comes down to... Uh, to cost, like you said, right? So the, 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 the primary driver for the Bitcoin miners is cost. And um, I think it was Troy who made this point to me. Um, it's, a, it's a perfectly competitive market, or it's the closest thing we have in the real world economy to a perfectly competitive market. Why? Because the barriers to entry are very low, um, because uh, they're location agnostic, right? So, um, you know, mining has already become, is already extremely competitive and it's only going to become more and more competitive. Um, and as a result, you know, Bitcoin miners are already very price sensitive, as we saw in that graph a moment ago, and they're only going to become more so in the future. Uh, and therefore, it's going to be really important for them to participate in programs like demand response to, to be profitable. Yeah. It's one of the really interesting parts of this as well is that, uh, like you, historically, I've been from the more left side. And uh, as I got older, I became more conservative and then my yeah. views kind of mixed between yeah. uh, progressive and conservative, depending on the topic. And, exactly. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed is that I've actually found myself moving away from 
the more progressive side of uh, the energy debate. Not in that I disagree that we have an issue with climate change. I do believe we do. And right. I've you know, said that many times and you know had the discussions and the criticisms from that. But the liberal side to uh, energy policy, I think, has been entirely and fundamentally yeah. wrong. Yeah. I think Greenpeace have recently exposed themselves as idiotic. Uh, I think we've seen what has happened across not only Germany, but here in the UK with yeah. energy prices yeah. really damaging yeah. the, the poorest in society just through poor understanding of nuclear and the incentives for uh, based around uh, more flexible... Um, uh, green energy sources, and so I, I, am not a hundred percent with the more conservative. Yes, let's just have burn coal or whatever. But I think there is a nuanced version that hasn't been done enough. Yeah, this is such a big topic. I mean, you don't need to look any further than than Germany. I think we can throw Germany under the bus <laughs> a little bit here because I think they deserve it. You know, um, what what's happened in Germany recently? So they uh, they had a few nuclear plants. Um, you know, the way nuclear works is the plants have a lifetime of some number of years, 30 years, something like that. And a lot of them are uh, have gone far beyond their initial expected lifetime because new plants haven't been built, but they, they need a lot of maintenance and they kind of eventually, you know, get shut down. Uh, so they've like not invested in maintaining the existing facilities. I think they shut some facilities down. They're down to, I don't know, a very small number. You could you could check one or two. Maybe, maybe they're all offline at this point, but what's happened as a result, they brought coal back online. Like, it's just absolute hypocrisy, and and it's just just piss poor planning. I mean, obviously over reliance on Russia in this particular case as well. Yeah, and also a lot of Europe is now relying on France's nuclear power. I mean, and France is what eighty or ninety percent nuclear, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's it it is it is ironic or laughable, but also ironic that the people who are most uh, who are most pro. How do I put this? The people who seem to make that they, they care the most for people, that their ideas and their political ideas are most for the care of society and the benefit of the poorest, are actually making decisions that right. are harming the poorest right. the most. Right. They're right. making people cold right. and they're making people hungry. Quite literally. Quite literally, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've seen it here. We now have, so do you have the food banks in the US? It's funny, actually. We were talking about, we were talking about this yeah. yesterday. I, I walked uh, across Bedford from the train station yesterday and the the most happening spot I passed was the Salvation Army and they, they had a food bank there with a long line. We absolutely do. It feels feels like home. Yeah. I know the one, I think I know the one you would have gone past. So you came out the station, took a right, yep. left and a right yep, that sounds to, right. as you got towards the river. Yeah, yeah. that place, to be honest, that place has been there for years, decades yep. since yep. I was a kid. But we have food banks here and they're yep. well supported and they're great. We now have warm banks. Yeah, I saw this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how depressing is that in a Western successful, yeah. economically successful yeah. country like the UK, we have warm banks. I mean, it's a complete failure. It's a sign of times to come, I think, yeah. unfortunately. But it's just a complete failure of policy. And, and you've talked about also many times how much energy costs have gone up, right? Didn't you say this was a factor in, in the bar that you're... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, but, but, you know, that's an interesting one. So definitely the energy costs are about to treble. And yeah. I'm, I'm buying in just as they're about to triple. Yeah. But also we've got minimum wages going up as well. And so I'm buying the place at a time when there is uh, a crunch on the business, but also I'm buying it at a time where there's so much opportunity with the business. And so there's two or three things that I'm able to do which swallow up those costs. So that's fine, but I am seeing it. I've seen yeah. it in my home, seen it with my yeah. friends, seen it locally. Seen it. I, energy costs in the UK have been very high. We've been lucky that the weather has been milder 
It was mild. Is this, is, is this mild by, by English standards? I don't know. It's been cold and rainy and windy since I got here. I mean, for April, this is pretty normal, right? Yeah, this is pretty normal. But yeah. but uh, the, the winter wasn't so crazy. No. But the, the, the it's been milder than was expected. Yeah. This this winter could have been this winter and spring could have been really bad, but it's That's been right. milder. That's right. Uh, Europe, 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 Europe across the board dodged a bullet this past winter, given you know the limited gas reserves and the limited supply from Russia. But we we need to dodge a few bullets because yeah, it's going to take exactly. a long time to get some nuclear power generation. Is fire. there are there forecasts of like how long it will take? You know, either let's say the UK or maybe Europe more generally. I mean, obviously some markets like like Germany it's particularly hard, right? But to become self sufficient, I know they're they're building more like natural gas facilities, you know, trying to shift more in that direction to, to receive uh, liquefied natural gas, I mean, I mean as, well, as opposed to gas coming through the pipelines from Russia. The UK is not that bad in terms yeah. of self-sufficiency on yeah. energy, especially in the data. Like I've just pulled it up, like now we're at 56% renewable with solar and wind. And uh, this is like current energy usage. Um, that's more than the States. That's impressive. And we've got a big nuclear plant called Hinkley Point coming online, I think in yeah. 2027, uh, which is going to be two big reactors. So in like, it's looking better but, yeah. um, but it we, takes we, time. Yeah, and we're certainly not in the same situation that Germany are in. Yeah. It, and when we um, like demand energy from other countries, it tends to come to, from France because they've got such an oversupply of nuclear and it's so close. Uh, they've benefited benefited from having a nationalised uh, energy sector, which I know would be really unpopular with some people. But uh, they ha that's how they that's what they've benefited from. Benefited from. Uh, I think both can work. But is it EDF? Is it EDF? It was was uh, was yeah. Electricité de France, probably right. Something like that. Um, was energy one of the sectors here that was privatized as part of that whole wave of denationalization, right? That happened yeah. in all the companies under Thatcher. Was it? I remember. Yeah, it's under Thatcher. English history here, correct? Yeah, no, you're, you're correct. It's, it's where your British gases and your yeah, British yeah. petroleums oh, right. and your right. British airways, all your British companies. I mean, it might not have been all of them, but yes, we went through a mass uh, program privatization, and there's been there's been pushes to nationalize. Oh, the rail as well, right? Wasn't that the, a whole? Thing? That's been the one. That, so the rail sector is the one that's had the biggest arguments yeah. because essentially it's been privatized, huge profits service quality has dropped right. and prices have gone up. Right. Uh, compared to other places in Europe I've been, our railways are fucking shit. It's, it's funny because it's all relative. You know, I took the train up here from London yesterday and it was absolutely beautiful and clean and the train ran right on time, which we'd never get in the States. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with this one too because I think the trains in England are quite good. Yeah, yeah, but I agree. Compared to America. But you're, not compared you're, to continental Europe, like you said. Yeah, so yeah. I've so I, let's where, where have I been on trains? I've taken the uh, train from uh, New York to Washington. Yeah, the Amtrak, the SLO, one of those, yeah. That's horrendous. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've taken certain trains in the UK, which we have a mixed bag. Yeah. If you get the right train from London to Bedford, it's a nice train. 40 minutes. Yeah, 40, right yeah you, you got the fast train. Yeah. Um, I've been to Holland, where you have your double-decker trains, which freak me out. And I've been to Norway. The trains are unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So um, I think we're about average here. About average. But yeah, yeah so they're the big arguments, because what happens is if you're a commuter, say you're a commuter, mm. you commute from Bedford to London, every year your train tickets tend to go up yeah. higher yeah. Than, uh, uh, than inflation and higher than yeah. wage growth. And that's always a, that's always a sign something's wrong, right? Yes, <laughs> but the service has got worse. So there used to be yeah. uh, there used to be this thing called what well, you call it the fast train. It was thirty five minutes. It would go from bed, it would go Bedford Luton London. Yeah. So you could get on the train and be at Kings Cross in yeah. thirty five yeah. minutes, and then they got rid of it. And they've gradually put on uh, worse trains with worse carriage. Basically, it's a, a it's a, a a product that's getting worse and that's costing more. 
And so that's the point. Which, which in, a, in a really competitive market would never work. But Yeah, but it's, prob- it's difficult to have a competitive market on, on a single track. No, it's funny because actually, yeah, rail infrastructure is usually the counterexample we use like in, in, in like business school, for example, when talking about markets that are not competitive, right? Because you need that physical infrastructure and it's, it's always licensed by the government or owned or operated by the government. But that said, they managed to do it with utilities. You know, you can have competitive yeah. utilities, you know, to whoever I'm buying my gas off, it all comes through the same line. It's still the same gas. So they managed to do it with yeah. that. But yeah. The, uh, well, it's the same in the States. Look, you know, the, the New York City subway um, has been on the verge of collapse multiple times in the past few years. We had a federal bailout. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, actually, because public transport is maybe not as crucial to human flourishing as energy, but it's up there. It's close to it. Right. I think the example of the fast train from here to London is a good example because it means people can live here and commute to London um, and, you know, have an affordable home and an affordable life here rather than being forced to, to live in London and pay exorbitant prices. Um, it, you know, the subway in New York is the thing that ties the city together and makes it livable for millions of people who couldn't afford to get around otherwise and commute. So those are they're really, really important you know, pieces of infrastructure for, for literally, I mean, millions, if not billions of people around the world. Yeah. And the fact that they're just so poorly managed and losing money and you know, it's it's really frustrating. Central planners. Central Let's get back planners. to energy. Yes. <laughs> well, so so what, what, I want to make one final point on energy, yeah. if that's okay. Not final point, but but another important point, right? To bring us back, uh, and this is something else that I learned from from your show. I don't remember who it was who 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 phrased it this way. You guys might remember, but um, this was I don't know, probably a couple of years ago. Actually, maybe it was Nick. Um, there's a direct correlation between human flourishing that you know the success of human society and the extent to which dense cheap energy is available right those yeah. throughout human history those are tightly correlated was that nick i don't know i think that's come up a few times on yeah, the show to be honest probably. i think steve barber might have said that as well i think alex epstein might have covered that that's as possible well. yeah yeah but but this is you know again this is this is a key point and it's something that that really struck me and stuck with me i mean i obviously i heard this you know a couple of years ago whenever it was discussed um and I think it's the thing that gives the lie to what you were saying a moment ago about the kind of very liberal, very progressive, you know, green energy agenda, right? Which, which leans towards degrowth, right? Mm. Um, like, no, we want, it's not that we want to reduce the energy we're consuming necessarily, right? We just want more abundant greener sources of energy, other things being equal. Yes. But, but, but that consumption of energy is fundamental to human flourishing. I think that's the point I'm trying to reemphasize. And I think sometimes it's, it's harder to see it in developed Western nations. Right. Because you see energy everywhere. You see yeah, grids that are fairly stable. Talk to Marshall Long when he went out to Kenya and saw the Gridless Project. Right. And he said, these are, you're going to villages when, when it gets dark, right. everything stops because right. there is no light. Right. <laughs> you might light a fire, you might light a candle. He said, when you bring power and electricity to these villages, you open up certain opportunities, like a refrigerator. Right. So any food you have, you can store and it can yeah. last longer. Or children can study at night. You right. Know, harder under a candle, they can yeah. study at night. You know, one or of the a things farmers that, can produce more. You know, one of the things that kills literally millions of people around the world each year is... Um, burning wood? Burning wood inside homes. Yes. This is a big thing in, in the South Asian continent, um, probably other places, probably Africa as well. Um, people just breathing in the fumes from that. So if you are able to provide those those people in those places with electricity, it literally saves millions of lives, literally. I mean, look at the industrialization of the world, the productivity increases that have come from the fact that you have power to power uh, more productive 
yeah. environments. Yeah. It, it just yeah. it is so obvious, but that still relates to people here. They're ever, they, you know, yeah, it frustrates me, Lane. Um, well, me so, too. <laughs> so listen, so let's get back to this. So the criticism of the New York Times admissions data. So Daniel Batten's analysis was very good on this. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about this one, Danny? Uh, I could, let me pull up a slide. That's probably the best thing yeah. to do. This is DS Batten on Twitter. Right? Yeah. yeah. Can't wait to get him on the show. Maybe this year. Anyway, the New York Times uh, article <laughs> overstates miners' fossil fuels oh, right. by an average of 81.7%. Yeah, so they had that table at the end of the article. Um, I think you have it in your notes. Yeah. Right, that actually shows all of the facilities that they covered and uh, the amount. That's yeah, I think that's year. it right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a number of things wrong here. So one of the points that, uh, whoops, sorry, the name was Daniel? Daniel Batten? Daniel Batten, yeah. yeah. One of the points he made was that there was, it was cherry picking within cherry picking, right? So uh, kind of the, 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 the article, the way it kind of, you know, presents um, Bitcoin mining is, is already cherry picking, you know, because of the, the way they covered demand response, like we talked about. And the other big one is this um, marginal impact accounting, which we, we need to talk, to, talk, talk about as well. Um, but then additionally, the sort of miners that they chose to cover here, you know, I think there's only two in their list of 30 something that uh, are among the greenest ones. But there's, you know, at least a dozen other miners that are very, very green. And, and he lists examples and they chose not to cover any of those. And, ju and just for anyone listening, this says that Riot Platforms uses 96% fossil, fossil fuels, Cypher Mining 92%, US Bitcoin 92%, uh, Bitdeer 96%. Right. But again, that's on the basis of this marginal accounting. Yes. We'll get into that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, shout out to our sponsor, Iris Energy, 100% renewable energy. 100% renewable That's energy. That's really impressive. Where are they listed? Right, exactly. I think I'm sure they're one of the, the one of the miners that uh, they chose not to cover here. I wonder why. Well, I mean, look, first, it could be because they're mainly based in Canada, although we ah. know they're expanding out to the US. But, you know, the idea if you did a broader, you could say, you could say, well, look, what, look what's happening here in Canada. At exactly. least make the point, say, exactly. there is a company here that's 100%. Why can't it be here? Like, push push the needle in that direction. Um. So let's get, Danny, can you explain this marginal accounting? I, I think it'd probably be best if Lane, I, I, I'm, I'm, I sort of semi-understand it, but I think it'd be better to come from you. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Can you pull up that, <laughs> uh, that visual that we mentioned earlier from uh, Harry's tweet thread, the one you had yes. it on the screen earlier? Yeah. I think it's, it's really helpful for, for folks who are watching the video to, to see the visual. So um, it's interesting, actually, as well, because marginal accounting is an important part of the space mesh protocol as, as you guys are aware like we're you know we're um the, the way that we enable mining from home is by making it the case that anyone who's mining uh it, it, it doesn't matter I'm, I'm not here to talk about space mesh but but it's 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 nuanced and it's and it's important and it's a little bit difficult to understand right uh i mean it is quite literally economics 101 um and and i think that's the case here as well so the idea is that you have a uh, a stack of um, sources of energy, and this is this is the the, the visual that, that Danny's going to find for us. Um, and you know, this includes obviously non-renewable sources. It includes it includes nuclear. It includes um, you know, uh, it includes gas. It includes coal. Um, and and the way it's laid out here, you have the, the renewable sources on top, right? So so basically, solar, wind, the chart is comparing bitcoins uh, bitcoin to electric vehicles. Right. So, so this chart is not, um, it's not a marginal analysis, but it's, it's a helpful. Um, so, so this chart's making a different point. And the point that this chart is making is that actually Bitcoin mining on the whole is far more sustainable than, I mean, in this particular case, they're comparing to electric vehicles. 
Um, but actually, it's, it's also Bitcoin mining is also far more renewable on the basis of the information we do have um, than just the, the overall, you know, um, production and consumption mix in the United States. I think I have some numbers in that here. Yeah. So this comes from um, the Bitcoin Mining Council, right? So they had a, a survey of miners, um, bottom up analysis of 50% of the current hash rate. Uh, and of the miners surveyed, 64.6% of the mix is sustainable. So that's defined as wind, solar, hydro, or nuclear. Um, and if you extend that analysis globally, and, and I'm also quoting more or less directly from, um, I think this is the, the response letter that Nick and a few other folks sent to the EPA early last year. So Nick spoke about that on, on the show. Um, if you extend that analysis globally using a conservative, using conservative assumptions about the energy mix, in the aggregate, Bitcoin mining employs an estimated 58.4%. So this is 53.8%. Those numbers are quite close. Um, and the default US energy mix is 21% sustainable. So it's more than twice as sustainable. And that's using conservative estimates. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right now. I'm a hodler. I'm not selling. We're in a bull market, but I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I've been stacking sats through this bear market. Now, both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as the wallet allows you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. Wasabi is incredibly easy to use, even for a non-technical person like me, as it provides you with privacy by default. There's no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi uses CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users. Also, BTC Pay server users can even make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a massive privacy improvement. Also, from April the 19th, Trezor Suite users can now make CoinJoins on the hardware wallet, saving on fees and also providing superior security. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I. W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also today, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, please head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. So if the Bitcoin Mining Council is surveying the miners themselves, right. how do we independently verify or know the validity of the data they're providing? 
I mean, you might not be able to answer. Yeah, that. I, I don't. I don't uh, have the answer. But to that's that question, what I would but... be doing as a journalist. Exactly. Exactly. That, that is my point. Is that yeah. rather? Yeah, I would be saying, okay, this is what they're saying. How do you independently right. verify right. that? I mean, Bitcoin is all about trustlessness. It should be able to. It should be possible to more or less trustlessly uh, demonstrate that this that this is true. And I think what we need is just more transparency. And I think that Bitcoin miners, at least in, in the United States, have been quite open. I mean, we're talking. What was the number here? Um, more than fifty percent of the current hash rate. I don't know if that's global or just in the United States, but it's it's a lot. I mean, this just takes us back to the point. If you put Bitcoin next to uh, EVs, right. you know the and both emit zero carbon dioxide. Right. A Bitcoin Directly. miner emits zero CO two. An EV emits zero CO two. They're both consumers of electricity, right? And so, therefore, where they source from, those sources do. Right. Can, sorry, not all do, can emit CO2. So when you, this is where it gets to the, you can get to the nub of what's going on here. Exactly. Is that if you compare Bitcoin to EVs, it is, they're using way more sustainable resources. So, right. but these same people aren't writing critical articles of Tesla. These people aren't writing critical right, articles of Christmas lights EVs or PlayStation. EVs are darlings of, you know, of the mainstream media and, and the government and just kind of the liberal you know, or world order, so to speak. Yeah, so it gets... Bitcoin is not. Yeah, so wh why? Like, why is this happening? I, I mean, I think... It's not rational. Well, I, I can rationalize it in a couple of ways. I think there are a number of people, journalists, who look at Bitcoin and they've heard of... I think it's that very simple argument. It's the Craig, Craig Warmke one. The very simple argument is the longer oh, yeah. they've known about <laughs> yeah. it and they didn't buy right. some, the more They're bitter salty. they are. They're salty. Yeah. These people are salty. They're salty. Other people have made money and they haven't. Do you know what's interesting about this article? We, we didn't mention this. So the the headline author is is this 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 fellow, Gabriel J.X. Dance. Um, as far as I can tell, he's never written anything about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or blockchain or mining before. You know, he's someone who has covered things like online suicides and child abuse. I mean, that's great. Those are important topics. Um, but this came completely out of the blue. I, I, I'm really curious. It's just, it's just, it's just strange. Well, I don't know. You think like a Nathaniel Popper or someone would be the one to like write, you know, this kind of article. Well, I have big issues with Nathaniel Popper exactly. as well now. Um, <laughs> you know, because yeah, I think he is the perfect example of uh, Craig Warmke's article yeah. in that he was around a long time. He wrote the first book yeah. I read about Bitcoin, Digital Gold. Yeah. Um, he was very pro-Bitcoin. What I'm saying is this particular person doesn't seem to have an agenda here. I mean, who knows, right? But Well, I, I, I wonder if this is because you've just listened. He's written very important articles therefore about child exactly. abuse yeah. and online suicide. So like, exactly. You know, they're important yeah. emotional subjects. And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He's done a really good journalistic job on those. Yeah. Although obviously I have my doubts now. Yeah. Maybe in those circles, he has a very yeah. good reputation now. It's yeah. like, yeah, Gabriel's really important, hard and stuff, right? Let's get him to do this one now. Maybe he's been kind of thrown under the bus sure. as as the credible guy to do it. I just don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I think this is malice. Like he could have spoken to so many people yeah. who would have put him right very quickly. Yeah. I cannot believe, I don't think we can give him the benefit of the doubt on that. Didn't he speak to Nick and a few of these other folks? Yeah, well, he quoted Nick from yeah. that the letter he sent to oh, him. from the letter, yeah. right, right. But it, it does make me now want to read his stuff on child abuse and see what he's done there. Has, is there malice in the... Is it, there makes you, it makes you wonder, you know, how 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 accurate those pieces are. Yeah. What, what, but this, this know, goes back to the point I said early on about being sad and frustrated because it really, it can't help but have this effect where it calls into question literally everything the Times says. Well, I think it's very hard now to be a a proper journalist in a large yeah, traditional media organization. One, I don't think you're paid enough. Um, and two, I don't think you have enough freedom. Now, it's not everyone. I think there are very good journalists that work across the spectrum. Even 
the BBC, which has become some people's whipping boy this week because of Elon Musk, um, I think they're very good journalists everywhere. But it seems to me now the best journalists are those who are independent. They're on Substack. They're on Substack. And that's why I'm a huge, like, I haven't spent enough time on their new notes thing. But I have a feeling that, and I hope, I hope that is a place that is going to elevate up the best independent writers and thinkers. And by the way, it's not all independent. Some get audience captured because of the incentives. But I feel like Substack is pushing things in the right direction. Yeah. Which, by the way, again, was weird to see Elon Musk attack it. But we will come back to that. Yeah, it gives me hope. Let's, if, if it's okay with you, with your yeah. permission, I just want to finish talking about this marginal accounting thing because it is important and we didn't really get a chance to like properly yeah. explain it. But that is apparently where these numbers come from. And this is the, I mean, frankly, the, the dodgiest piece of this article from my perspective. So um, if you go back to that stack graphic, sorry, I keep mentioning it. It's, yeah. it's just helpful. Um, the way this works is the following, right? So it, it's kind of like the notion that this, so again, ignore the EVs, ignore the Bitcoin, just, just focus on one of these stacks, right? There's this existing stack of, of uh, electrical generation that exists on the grid, right? And let's say it's 36.7% coal and 23.5% gas, et cetera. The idea of marginal is to say that when you add new demand to the grid, right? A, a, a marginal unit of additional demand, what source fills that demand, right? And this would be in times of like peak demand, for example. And the reality is, as we talked about a little while ago, that the, the, the parts of the grid that are able to respond to that demand, right, are less green. And so these are things like natural gas. I, again, I'm not an expert. I don't know exactly where natural gas falls relative. I know it's greener than coal, for example. Um, I guess actually this is probably ordered like roughly, right? So it's, it's, but it's less green than solar or wind. But so the problem with this type of accounting is it kind of says that like there's this set of industries that have that are incumbent, right? That have been there all along consuming electricity, right? And these are the large industrial use cases, the, you know, whether it's chemicals or metallic plants or, you know, the, the residential use cases, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Bitcoin is new and, and EVs are new, right? And, and we have these new sources of demand. And, and it's very unfair to them because it's it's saying that they're adding additional demand to this existing uh, set of demand. And therefore, um, the fact that the the sources of generation that fill that demand are less green, that it's kind of somehow Bitcoin's fault that that's the case, right? And, and it's, it's based on their pure existence, the fact that they right, exist. Right, <laughs> but, but what it does is, and this is, this is the key point, is that it privileges the existing sources of consumption. Okay, let me say that again, because this is the key point. Again, yeah. it assumes that this stack exists both of supply and demand, right? And that the existing sources of demand are somehow privileged. Right? And they get to claim the greenness of, of the stuff at the bottom, or sorry, the stuff at the top there, the solar, the wind, the hydro, et cetera, right? Whereas things like Bitcoin, but, and, and of course, you know, EVs and other sort of new sources of demand or, or high performance computing centers, this kind of stuff, right? Somehow gets the, the scraps, so to speak, which is to say the, the less green sources of demand. And uh, I think I'm, I have a couple comments here. So this comes from, I think, Nick, right? It's, it's degrowth and it's... Um, it's neo-Malthusian, he uses this term, and I think this is like a really, really brilliant way to talk about it, right? It's, it's, it's anti-innovation as well, right? Because it, it kind of says that like, you should only be bringing new sources of demand onto the grid if you can like afford to bring, you know, your own solar farm or wind farm with you, which actually, you know, Google and Meta are to some extent able to do, but like no one else is able to do that. I just think it's completely absurd and we need to call that out. Well, it's just creating this subjective argument yeah, it's about very subjective. Who, exactly. who can use energy, which always right. breaks down right. under analysis. Right. Because and you only have to bring up Christmas lights. 
And if you ask any right. rational person, what is more important, Christmas lights or a money for activists working under authoritarian yeah. regimes, I'm going to go with the most, look, that's a very niche use case of Bitcoin, but what is the most important is yeah. that? What is more important, good money or Christmas lights? Christmas lights are one of the most least required uses of energy. Yeah, that, that's, I, I think that comes world, from, that but comes that's from, my um, subjective world. That comes from Antonopoulos, he used to say that yeah. back in the day. But there's so many others, as I looked into this, you know, over the past year or two, um, do you know what uses slightly more energy than Bitcoin mining? Gold mining, yes. right? Printing physical notes, right, on the part of our governments and, and coins, that costs significantly more than Bitcoin. Have you got, do you remember that chart? The oh yeah, it's, it's also in one of the tweets I retweeted recently. It's the one with the circles, right? It's, it's really incredible. Um, but in, uh, in, running running banks, right? Uh, you know, printing money. These things cost significantly more energy than Bitcoin. And uh, fashion, the fashion industry. While we want to talk about things that are unnecessary, depending where you stand, right? Two hundred to three hundred times the energy usage of Bitcoin. And going back to this, like marginal emissions, um, any new Tesla straight off the lot exactly. is it the, in the exact same boat? If you no, use the same no, the no. same absurd type of accounting, yeah. No, not, they don't count. <laughs> Just Bitcoin. Um, and then another point that was made that I think is really important is that the analysis that was done, so they worked with, uh, the Times worked with two third parties here to do this. Um, they're totally proprietary, right? When they're calculating the, the tons of emission here, uh, I guess maybe the fossil fuel mix as well. It's very hard to refute them point by point and to, to debate them when they're using these kind of closed source. I mean, you, you guys know I'm an open source maximalist, right? Like a closed source proprietary algorithm for calculating these things. I mean, how do we even engage if they're not telling us how they're calculating these numbers? It's absurd. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is absurd. And I'm it's not get, a standard. No. And I'm, 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 you know what, I'm getting sick and tired of it. I mean, it just goes back to that point where I, I just started, you know, I started to realize, and it's been a, like a five, six year journey of peeling back those onion layers of what I thought was true and I thought was real isn't. Um, and that has been a really hard journey to go on. But it's, and with you, it's like, who, who do you believe? Who do you trust now? We've been so open. Uh, no, no, that wasn't the this, one I was thinking of. This one is, yeah, this one is brilliant. I love this. Let's see fashion, right? 2,106, what is the unit here? Uh, gigawatts or something probably, right? Um, but yeah, you see, oh, tobacco. That's another one. Tobacco uses more than Bitcoin, right? That's, uh, that's, uh, not, yeah, that's not so great for the world. Yeah, smoking's awesome. Come on, leave it alone. <laughs> Glass gas flaring. So this is so this comes from Cambridge, right? And, and I think Cambridge is one of the the more trusted, reliable sources on um, hard numbers, as opposed to the sources quoted by the government, for example. You know, like in that letter that Nick was criticizing. Um, but look, gas flaring uh, alone is more than three times. Like in other words, could power the entire Bitcoin network more than three times over if we were just literally doing nothing more than taking advantage of flared gas, which is one hundred percent wasted. Well, it's interesting because I look at uh, livestock and manure and Bitcoin as ones that get massively attacked, right? But I never see the same group of people attack fashion. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. There's um there's a really good documentary called Fast Fashion, which is um by a British journalist. What's her name? It's three hundred uh, times. You know the ones I mean. Um three hundred times the amount of energy consumed by Bitcoin. I mean, that's enormous. Yeah, but what about those dresses and things they're gonna wear to the Met, Met Gala and so if to the Oscars. My, my my point is is not that we shouldn't have fashion. It's that if we reduce the energy consumption of the fashion industry by one three hundredths, okay, that's a third of a percentage point, it would pay for the entire Bitcoin network and then some. That's, it's just, it's so absurd when you look at it in, in absolute terms like this. Like, why aren't we having this conversation? This is the conversation we should be having. Um, because there's never a balanced conversation. 
It's just it's just a double standard, and, and that's yeah. But I think the point is, there's no point attacking any one of those. There's no point exactly. I, I agree with industry. that, including Bitcoin. Yeah, just, <laughs> I'm also getting worked up because it's so frustrating. It is frustrating because it's holding back everything we're trying to do. You know, even I, I, I mean, you'll have it. I'll have it, Danny. Whenever we talk, trying to talk to people new in, constantly having to deal with nonsense, the fud, the fud, the same stuff. How many people are going to read that New York article now and think we're murderers? Think we're baby killers. <laughs> That's what they are, granny killers. That's what they think we are because we have to deal with this constant fud and it's just lies and bullshit. And that's why I think we need to declare a war on the New York Times. Yeah, because I don't think I would have agreed previously, but I'm coming around to that idea. And it's, again, it makes me sad and frustrated. What, I keep saying that. What do we need to tip you over the edge? <laughs> <laughs> Not a whole lot more than, uh, than this piece. But it comes back to, it's this hatred, no. Let's not just put it that. There's there's multiple. There is a group of people who Bitcoin is a threat to, which is banks, central banks, governments, some of the very wealthiest. But journalists? Well, but journal. I, well, I think we need to put journalists in scare quotes because, as we said, they're yeah. not doing real journalism. Uh, I put the me the Citadel. They're in the no, no, is it the cathedral? the cathedral. I mean, yeah, they're in the cathedral. So they're in the cathedral. Yeah, and true. the cathedral is. Uh, uh, a group of, oh God, I'm going to sound like a nutter. But it's basically, it's the elites, it's the politicians, yeah. it's the media. So, they um, all work together and they, they, they all have symbiotic relationships. Yarvin, uh, again, it's his term, right? Curtis Yarvin. I mean, he's a controversial figure for a whole bunch of reasons, but he's a really smart guy and he has some good points. And um, one of the points he makes when he talks about the cathedral is that it's not a conspiracy theory and there's not a smoke-filled back room somewhere where the elites are gathering, making these decisions. It's not that. It's just a system of incentives that exists and that serves to coordinate these behaviors that you're describing. I mean, it, it, it is not a coincidence that, you know, what's coming out of elite institutions, the Harvards of the world, the, the Cambridges and Oxfords of the world, um, and the New York Times and, you know, governments, et cetera, think tanks, all these places. It, it's not a coincidence that they're all saying the same things at the same time, but it's also not because, as I said, they're sitting in a room planning this, right? It, it's just that there's this existing system of incentives and uh, they benefit from the existing world order and they are threatened by Bitcoin. So how do we break it? Because it needs breaking. Or do you think? Do you think? Do you think this is just all an organic organic process? And Substack is the for ev for ev for every um, virus within within the system. Just consider this as a virus. There is you know some there is a uh, a white blood cell which comes back, and you know is Substack is, is Substack the white blood cell to to poor journalism? I hope so. I mean, I don't know a ton about Substack. Uh, I've you know, it, it is a for-profit company. Um, I worry, so I, let me say, I have a Substack, by the way, and I've enjoyed using it. Uh, I've enjoyed both reading as well as producing content on Substack um, so far. I worry that the system of incentives for a for-profit company, uh, venture-backed, I think they're venture-backed. I don't want to misspeak. I'm not 100% sure. But what, I, what they are venture-backed. Uh, the system of incentives is such that if they continue to grow and scale, they'll run into some of the same issues as like Twitter. That's what I'm trying, that's what I'm worried about. But they were venture-backed, but due to the credit crunch because of um, the run on the banks recently, they weren't able to raise a new round. So they went out and raised from their uh, users, didn't they? I think they, did they raise a few million? I'm that would be cool if that if that's the case. Yeah, yeah I, they were because they could, they couldn't raise from the market. So there was, which I also did find surprising because yeah. they are huge, hugely successful in terms of adoption and awareness. Right. I don't know the right. economics of the business. I don't know either, but you know they have introduced some really cool features recently. Um, they have a pretty clear path to monetization. You know, 
I hope that they're able to chart a path forward that avoids the type of capture that has happened, you know, avoids them falling into the cathedral, so to speak, the way that, you know, um, maybe Twitter and other platforms have, certainly Facebook. Um, you found it, Danny. Well, I can see that they've had a failed round. Well, they basically just backed out of a round, but I can't see them raising money through users. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's there's always those risks because of the incentives of the owners, and that's where we have to we have to compare Twitter with Substack with Nostra. I was just about to say we we need to look at decentralized things like Nostra and um, Farcaster and some of the others. Do you know who created Nostra? Uh, was it not Jack Dorsey? Well, he was he wasn't he was part of it. Was it you? Yeah, it was me. <laughs> it was me. You're welcome. It was uh, Mr. Ben Ark. Oh yeah, yeah. It's cool, by the way. I mean, as someone who professionally, this is what I do: is I eat, breathe, and sleep. You know, decentralized protocols. Um, Nostra's it's it's elegant. It's it's very simple. Yeah. Uh, it's surprisingly usable. Have you met Ben? No. He is such a cool motherfucker. He's the kind of guy who creates Nostra and goes, "Yeah, have it. I'm off to my next thing." doesn't get like if that was me it'd be like uh, i created that <laughs> this guy yeah but i mean this is the difference in some ways between a protocol and a company yeah mm. you, you create a company you're by default sort of the founder the ceo the face of that company you stand to benefit if the company does well a protocol i mean it's not the first time i mean okay satoshi's the most obvious example with bitcoin but i think there's other examples of protocols being kind of like just mic dropped into the world you know yeah but get back to the central point is yeah. it's not whether it's twitter it's not whether it's substack it's not whether it's nostra actually i mean they're, they're all tools it's whether credible independent right. journalists can right. go out and create content, do research, publish their content, and have a different set of incentives or different set of pressures. I think got to give a big shout out to Matthew Taibbi yeah. this last couple of weeks because he, he was on Elon Musk in a circle. He got full access to the Twitter files and... He called Elon Musk out when... Is it, he published a thing saying, goodbye Twitter, I guess, something like this, something right? Like because, that, yeah. because Twitter was... I mean, I, we, we, we've alluded to this a few times, but m my understanding of what happened a week or so ago was that for a brief period of time, Substack links effectively were not working on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. you could like... I think Very strange, right? Well, it's not because they were about to release Substack. Have you seen Substack notes? I haven't played with it yet. I'm aware just, of it. Do you want to just stick it up? Bring, yeah, I'll bring it up. They did uh, take 5 million, by the way. Five million off users. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So if you look at Substack notes. So it's sort of like a Twitter competitor, supposedly, right? Basically. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it looks just like Twitter. Oh, no kidding. Wow. This really, this but, really does look like Twitter. <laughs> but what's quite interesting is most of the people in there are the the more, it's more like. Um, Him at ABS here there. Yeah. Rather than just being like all the different morons you follow yeah. and yeah. your mates and all the bullshit, it's like all the most credit. It's, it's basically your blue check marks from right. Twitter. Right. Uh, Wait, so why is that the case? Well, I think the way it worked is, is all the people, if I, if I open up notes now, it's going to be all the uh, people, the people you already follow, right. already subscribed subscribe to, to, and their people are making yeah. the effort to write content. Yeah. And so it's become kind of like, for me, it's like a better front page of Reddit. It's, it's yeah. a newspaper of independent journalists. It's also like curated because there's people on here that I don't follow. So they must decide who they're pushing. And so for me, this, this is a, this is certainly a threat to Twitter. I was going to say that. So it's interesting because I've been kind of following the space for a few years and there have been no small number of, you know, web three decentralized, whatever, whatever kind of Twitter clones and competitors that have popped up over the years, at least five or six. Um, we, I mean, Nostr is a bit kind of in a category of its own, but we have this thing called Farcaster in the Ethereum world that's become pretty popular lately, uses Ethereum identity, sign in with Ethereum, et cetera. I never considered any of them a threat to Twitter 
simply because of the network effects. The network effects of Twitter are so powerful. I would go there even if the, the UI UX was smooth, which it wasn't always. Um, the reality is that like the people I follow, the content I'm interested in, like largely exists on Twitter. This is the real threat to Twitter. And, and I, I now, for the first time in years, think, and, it, and it's kind of sad for Elon, right, given the fact that he just took the company private. I mean, he, he, he has said publicly the company is worth half of what he paid for it a year ago, right? Um, but this, this, is, this is a real threat to Twitter. And I actually think the, the, the fortress walls are beginning to show cracks for Twitter, well, genuinely. So, and, and, and the things that he's done recently, like the, the censorship that's occurred on Twitter over the past year, these, this is the thing that's pissing me and other people off. These are the death throes. These are, I mean, maybe not death throes, that's an exaggeration, but these are signs of those cracks appearing. Would you agree? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. look, look, he, um, he, he, you know, he threw a bone out. <laughs> Shout out to Lynn, that's brilliant. We're, we're uh, reading some headlines here that she tweeted. Lynn, I think Lynn is possibly the best person in the world at everything now. <laughs> like, <laughs> can, can we please make does. her our finance minister already? Or whatever. Uh, she's just fucking brilliant. And when yeah. she goes, she goes deep and she goes savage. And she, uh, her ability to constantly be right is unbelievable. Yeah. But the on, thing, on a wide range of subjects as well. I was very suspicious from the start. Yeah. And you can see that from my tweets. And I'm not just saying this now, I was very suspicious of Elon Musk, of, of him and his incentives. Yeah. And when he started very early on talking about making uh, speech free, but very quickly wanted to charge people, he, I mean, he destroyed the benefit of the blue check mark. Right. And look, I know some people are going to be listening and go, are we only saying that because you're an elitist and you got one? No, it was useful because as somebody who produces content, right. when a blue check followed right. you, you're like, oh, who is that? What do they do? Oh, great. I'll reach out to you. Can I talk to you? Can I, it was a very useful tool there was some, for a network yeah. in journalism. Now it has no purpose. There, there was some um, really well-respected institute or something. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to remember the name specifically enough for you to find this tweet, but they tweeted this a day or two ago. Uh, they lost their blue check mark because of course the system is changing. You have to pay for it now. And they said something to the effect of like, how do people know which sources to trust without well, them? Yeah. There's, there's something there. I mean, it's, 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 but can you I understand why he would, why they want to charge. I mean, I, look, I'm okay with the freemium model. I think it's, it's a reasonable business model. Um, but it sort of turns Twitter into a plutocracy and that, you know, bothers me for obvious reasons. Well, and I, I think what happened was, I think he got into a situation where he didn't want to buy it, had to buy it. Right. And now, you know, has to try and make it generate revenue. He sacked a huge number of staff and, you know, probably did some really good things, made the company a bit more efficient in places, probably sure. fucked up in some places, sure, probably some sure. people he shouldn't. But uh, to me, it smacks of rushing too quickly, that move fast, break things, and he might break it too hard. For me now, tw Twitter's funny, I still use it. I basically sure. I use Twitter Nostra and I'm going to start spending some time on those. For Nostra, Nostra is for me is a Bitcoin chat room. I, I'm a bit of a lurker. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think I can add too much into that. But if I've got a question, I go there usually before Bitcoin Twitter and I get some brilliant instant answers and it's full of really good people. I use Twitter. And, Twitter's like, did, have you ever been a smoker? Nah, well, only when I was drunk. Okay. Do you ever have it when you'd have a cigarette and afterwards you'll feel disgusted? Why did I do that? Yeah, oh, yeah. every time. <laughs> so so that, that's what Twitter is like yeah. for me. Like, uh, it's like having a cigarette. You know, I go in there and I just, ah, oh, I feel gross and disgusting. No, it feels great at the time, you know, and then you always regret it after. There's just too yeah. many fucking yeah. morons on that. Yeah, and I agree. That you just can't get rid of them. You post it and it's just like bullshit. But, but just going back to what I said earlier, you know, about Substack facing some of the same risks that Twitter does, I think that Noster and, um, and Notes on Substack have these risks. My point is that if they succeed in their mission to defeat Twitter, so to speak, who's to say that, you know, these... 
I just, the masses of, of, of idiots won't, won't move, migrate to those platforms well, and they'll I, face the same issue. No, what I was heading towards is that is it needs to remove the algorithms that incentivize yeah. and reward yeah. yeah. morons. Yeah. Not people you disagree with, yeah. morons. So the benefit of, of like Noster is that it's open source and it's a protocol, which means you can build different clients on top of it. I mean, that's really speaking my language. And someone somewhere will develop a, a client for Noster that will have sensible algorithms. I actually find Nostra, the Bitcoin conversation on Nostra, way more rational than the Bitcoin chat on Twitter in that, you know, the kind of people who give me shit on Twitter when they do it on Nostra, it, yeah, there's other people going back to them saying, just fucking grow up. There's a bit more yeah. of no, but my, respect my, to dialogue. My, no, but I was heading to a point is that the, the point is, is that if Notes gets it right, what I, I don't think I will care about all the comments underneath because it's going to become like a newspaper. So I'm going to read the main articles and the main content, the debate underneath. I just, I won't care for it. And that's my problem in Twitter is that there's, you, there's a point and then there's all this other bullshit underneath. You don't, I know you do. <laughs> I, know you do. I know you read the YouTube comments and the Twitter comments. I, I tend not to. I'm not sure it's, if it's a good habit or a bad habit, but I'm just bad. trying to make the point that the reason that many of these platforms, like if you remember Twitter circa 2008, 2009, like kind of in the early days, it was much higher quality discourse. And the reason is because in the early days of anything, any new technology or application, there's a higher barrier to entry, right? And when there's more costs associated with getting on something, the people who are there are gonna be by definition, people who are more thoughtful, who bring more to the table. When it's too easy to use a platform, when it becomes like truly canonical, truly ubiquitous as Twitter has, that's when you get like a lot of garbage on it. And I, I just, I fear, I'm just saying this again, right? I fear that the same thing will happen to these other platforms unless we can really change the system of incentives. And maybe Substack is onto something. Maybe Substack does represent the future of not only journalism, but social media, that would be huge. I, I hope so. And and I've got this new layer of suspicion now. We interviewed Ahmed Gatnash. I don't know if you listened to that one, but he works for a human rights body. And uh, one of the things they did was he talked about how on uh, Arabic Twitter, that mm. uh, most of the discourse was destroyed because Saudi government and other Middle Eastern governments were employing bot armies yeah. to disseminate uh, like a, a, a like an army of bots to destroy discourse. He said it just became unusable. And now I'm at the point of starting to think like, I how many how many people am I talking to that are bot now? These no, days? I, absolute I have, bullshit. And I mean, like, yeah. Whenever I criticize Russia with regards to Russia yeah, and Ukraine, yeah. the number of comments yeah. that I get coming out is like, there can't be that many people out there who honestly, genuinely believe that uh, Putin is a psychopathic dictator. And I don't need the whataboutism for other yeah, bad yeah. leaders from the West. He himself isn't a journalist murdering. Yeah opposition assassinating uh, leader of an army of rapists and murderers who've attacked a sovereign nation. C careful, you're, 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 you're poking the bear. Oh, fuck. <laughs> you <laughs> already have. I get poisoned. Um, no, but I had this fear as well before ChatGPT. Just think, <laughs> reflect on that for a second, right? Are I mean, we how, how much worse are the trolls going to get? Are we going here? It, it, it's it's it. terrifying, but but again, how do you... So if you're, let's say you're Noster, it's a decentralized protocol. There's not anyone really governing it, so to speak. How do you prevent the trolls and the, the bots? I mean, well, I just, I think almost like it would just become unusable. So how, but so how does it fix any of the issues with Twitter? I mean, just to my earlier point. So I think I am drifting towards only wanting to consume content from people I know exactly who they are. Yeah. And yeah, look, yeah, there, that's fair. There will be credible NIMS. You know, Doomberg has built, yeah. you know, whether you but, agree or no, not, but, it's credible but, but you have to here differentiate, like, how do I put it? Doomberg is pseudonymous, right? As are, you know, as is Satoshi Nakamoto and lots of other like fantastic contributors in, in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency ecosystem. But that's perfectly okay. They still have an identity and a brand. 
yeah. and, and, and a reputation, more to the point. They're not anons the way, you know, 4chan is, right? Yeah. People don't understand the difference between anonymity and pseudonymity. I think that there's an important distinction there. That's perfectly fine, building a reputation around a pseudonym. Yeah, but what I'm saying is I am going towards... I, I, people will know this is a conversation between Peter McCormack and Lane Reddick. That's cool. That's what I want. I want to hear, listen to yeah. Joe Rogan and yeah. Michael Schellenberger and have that yeah. conversation or Michael Mallet, whatever. And I know they are real and I trust what they're saying. I know Lynn Orden. Keep, yeah. where, Lynn Orden, where do I yeah. get your content? Matthew Taibbi. And I'm just going to become much more selective. Maybe it extends one degree further. So maybe you also want to, and I, by the way, I think that's what Substack is doing on notes. Uh, as well as I think Substack, they have another feed page as well, is that they're showing you the things that Lynn follows as well, like the, the people that you follow, what they follow as well. But I don't know if it goes much further than that, one, one degree further. But in the future, I mean, Doomberg established him themselves prior to the explosion of Jet, right. chat GBT in right. five years. Right. Doombergs will establish, which are entirely AI bots. And so that gets me even closer to... I don't know, maybe I just want more real-world interactions. Maybe conferences, in-person conferences are going to become more important because you're going to be sat with people you know yeah. you can trust. Yeah. I think you talked about it at the very start. You said, I don't want to trust anymore. I don't want to believe yeah. anymore. Yeah, I don't even know how to find the truth, right? So maybe all that stuff destroys all this internet discourse. Yeah, and but that's also kind of okay because that's yeah. how human society functioned for thousands of years. Right? We had this notion of, of Dunbar's number and, and you know, this notion of a tribe and an extended family in a village, and it didn't scale much beyond that. And I think it is, there's some, something beautiful going on here where we're going back to our roots, right? Where we're gonna wanna circle the wagon, so to speak. I mean, I certainly feel this. And like, when I go to these big, crazy conferences, all I really wanna do is like spend time with my friends and the people I trust. And, and to some exactly. extent, as I said, one degree further, like if, if I have a dinner with a friend and they bring a friend, that's brilliant, right? Lane, the great thing about this, we, we've gone full circle about this yeah. week, is you've come here to my hometown. Tomorrow night, we're all going to be down at the Swan Hotel with Jeff Booth, James Lavish, Ben Ark, Lawrence Lepard, a bunch of other Bitcoiners. We're going to hang out. We're going to talk. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a drink. We're going to go and watch exactly. a football match. We're all going to hang out. We're going to do a bunch of fun stuff and also have some important conversations. Right. All this online stuff is a distraction. I think now is becoming a distraction from living your best life. There was a really powerful quote I saw recently. I wish I could attribute it. We should look it up because it's really beautiful. Uh, and I think it sums up what you're saying nicely. The internet used to be a refuge from the real world. And today the real world is a refuge from the internet. I love that. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Yeah, Danny can, Danny can help us with the attribution. I'm so bad at that. No. <laughs> I just consume so much content. Do, do you know what the funny thing is about? Danny, talk to him about how, you, how your fact-checking has evolved. <laughs> In real time. Well, <laughs> Danny, you're such a hero. That can't be on this one, but if it's anything that is like, before 2021, I do everything through ChatGPT now. It's so yeah, much it's more amazing. useful to find like the accurate sources. Like if some the other day we had Eric Wall in. I don't. I know you've not listened to that yeah. one yet. Um, but he was mentioning a book, and he mentioned a chapter of a book, and how Richard Hart basically had used it as a playbook to build this hex cult. And um, so I literally just asked ChatGPT to yeah. summarize that chapter, and it gives you a perfect summation. It's pretty amazing. I've been using it for coding recently. Uh, I was quite skeptical of that for a while, but uh, it's. I mean. Scary good. Was it Noah Smith? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. This has a lot of likes. Yeah, you can see this. This kind of blew up. I love Such that. a beautiful quote. It is. That is a brilliant quote, and I agree with. I agree with him one hundred percent. Oh yeah. So Noah Smith, no opinion. He has a uh, a Substack, which is really really good. So shout out to Noah. But Speaking that's why. Substack. That, but also, it's one of the reasons we've always tried to do this show in person. It's real. It's not just 
right. better conversation in person. Exactly. It's the time beforehand, the time afterwards, the connections you build, the relationships you build. Mm. And like as we've traveled around the world doing this lane, I'm finding myself coming back to Bedford and saying, this is my home. I want to be here in Bedford. Yeah, but this, this is what I was saying earlier when you talked about investing here. You know, we are very privileged to be able to travel the way we do and spend time all around the world and have a network of friends all around the world. But we're losing something. And this is, this is a topic that my wife and I have been discussing quite a bit in the context of, of having had a child a year yeah. ago. Um, where do we want our child to grow up? Do we want our son... To, to be an American, you know, do we want him? I mean, this is, by the way, this is, this is a lovely town. I noticed there's a lot of really nice schools as I was yeah, walking over here. Yeah, you, you uh, moving in. We're, we're looking at Taiwan, we're looking at New Zealand, we're, you know, we're casting a wide net right now. Yeah. Um, but the real, I mean, and, and any of those story, places. Interesting set of choices. Yeah. Potential war zone. Yes. You've basically gone from a potential war zone to the place probably safest yeah. from a war. This is a, what do they call it in trading? This is a, a shoulder strategy or something. One very risky option and one, one very safe option at, at to hedge Jeez. it. Um, but, you know, any of those places I think are perfectly fine. I think Bedford's a perfectly fine place to raise a family as far as I know. Um, but the point is I want him to grow up kind of the way I did to have roots somewhere, right? To have a place that he can call home, to have a place where he knows people on a first name basis. And the way a lot of our friends are raising their kids, you know, they're moving around constantly. They're flitting from country to country, city to city, continent to continent. Um, they're these like, quote unquote, you know, citizens of the world, but they're, they don't have a home anywhere. And I no think that that's, families, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. Something's being lost. Yeah. Well, uh, you need a place to call home and you need a people that are your people. It's, it's like the start of cheers. Do you know the where start everybody cheers? knows you. Oh, I know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, but they're always that. glad you came. Yeah. Something like that, it right? is that. And yeah. it, it, you know, for me, I love it here and it's great to have you here. Um, and I think people should come to Bedford. I think that's how I'm going to finish. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's it's actually funny coming oh, here today. Did we not cover was, anything you wanted to we, we covered everything. Danny? I think we're good. Yeah, I um, think we're pretty good. Well, listen. We kind of went was, all over the place, but I enjoyed it. I was thinking on the way over what I wanted my final shout out to be, because you, you know me, I always give one. And it, that was literally what it was going to be. It was going to be come to Bedford. I mean, I have only been here 24 hours, but it's been fantastic. I have Danny partially to thank for that as well. I had a lovely jog this morning on the river, like I said, a nice walk over here. Um, it really is a quintessential, quintessentially British town. Um, oh, and I, I love what you're doing here. It is. I, I, I look forward to coming back many times. Well, you know, you should consider the homes here. Good schools, good people. I passed good, a couple of, podcasts. what do you, you call them estate agents here, right? The, yeah. the real estate shops on the way over. And uh, reasonably you, you, priced can't, houses? you can't spend more than half a million quid on a home. I mean, it's reasonably priced houses. Yeah. We have good air, good football, good bars. Not far from London. Not far from London, not far from Cambridge. But not too close either. Uh, just train ride from France. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> Lane, love you, man. Thank you for coming over. Um, I look forward to seeing you at the football tomorrow and uh, appreciate everything you've done. Looking forward to it. Love you too, Pete. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Cheers. Okay, what do you make of that one? Do you enjoy that? Now, I think Lane's a bit of a legend, to be honest. He's a good friend of mine. I first met him out in El Salvador, and we've stayed friends ever since. We've made a few shows together, and even though he's a bit of a shitcoiner, he is a massive Bitcoiner too, and so I'm always happy to get him on the show. Now, the New York Times piece was one of the most disappointing articles I've read about Bitcoin, and it's hard to put it down to anything other than malice, knowing who they spoke to to research the piece. Anyway, it was good to have Lane to break it down. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions about this or anything else, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can jump into our Patreon, join the Discord that is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. <laughs>